Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. I grew up in a ministry environment. I went to a Christian college. I've prayed a million times. I've read my Bible. I've tithed. I've done all these things. And it was like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, that's a, that's a nice list, but I'm not on it. And it was the first time I realized that Jesus was completely non-existent in my life. And it wasn't a formal prayer. It was more of an acknowledgement and understanding that he was who he says he is. And, you know, it, it's not an overnight thing. I've been through a lot of things with battling uh, mental health from that trauma that I grew up with. And it's not been an easy path, but I know I don't have to do it alone. And, you know, I, I understand that there's a different way in life and it's completely unrelated to how I was raised and I'm really thankful for that peace that I found. And peace after a very traumatic upbringing. We're joined today by Isami Dane. She grew up in Japan and was raised by professional con artists who pretended to be missionaries. Her home was an unsafe place for children as her mother became her sex trafficker at the age of nine. Now Isami managed to leave that abusive home and was introduced to her relationship with Jesus at the age of 23. Her mission now is to be a voice for the exploited and abused within religious settings. Today in Connections, she's going to share her powerful story and how we as a church can be better educated when it comes to human trafficking. We're joined today by Sami Dane. She is a survivor, an activist, and a speaker. Well, a great conversation coming up with Sami today, an important conversation, one that can also be very difficult at times as well. We're going to hear how the church can uh, be better equipped and help fight against human trafficking. Asami, you're an expert on this topic, something you're very passionate about. It comes from, unfortunately, personal experience. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your story, first of all? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me on the show today. I really appreciate this so much. I was born in Japan. Um, a very long time ago. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that, but I was born in Japan and I was raised there until I was about 17 years old. And my upbringing was very different from a lot of people's in that I was raised in a very religious home. I'd like to be very careful with how I put that uh, simply because what I understand to be a relationship with Jesus is not even comparable to what I thought a relationship with Jesus looked like at that time. My father is, was, um, wasn't is, a pastor slash missionary. I want to put that very loosely uh, because I've thankfully met some wonderful people in leadership now as an adult. And I understand that with that title comes a very big responsibility. And unfortunately, there were many things in my home that did not take that title seriously at all, including abuse. Um, unfortunately, there was misuse of funds. Uh, by the time I was 15 years old, uh, there, was, there was no ministry going on in my home. So there was funds being sent in from churches in the United States, uh, full support, full salary, uh, no work being done. So that started happening when I was about 15. Prior to that, there was some sort of a ministry. It was uh, quite shady where there were there were a lot of things going on, including abuse um, to various people. And um, unfortunately, my, my father grew up in 
in a home that that didn't teach a lot about what love was supposed to look like. And I think that he carried that with him into the way he parented me and my siblings and uh, shepherded our church. So I think a lot of that bled over. Uh, there really wasn't a lot of discipleship to train him to show him any different. So that's the environment I was raised in. Um, and with this and type of environment, there was not a lot of concern or care when it came to children in our church. And so that's actually where I met my abuser. So um, when I was um, about eight years old, we started renting a building from a military church in Japan. And that was closer to Tokyo. It was about, uh, I would say about a 30 minute train ride away. Um, which was technically in the suburbs, but it was a, a small city, and that was mostly where I grew up. But our uh, church pianist um, started attending our, our church when I was about nine years old, and I started taking uh, piano lessons from them. You know, first few weeks, nothing too serious happened, but I understand now a lot of that was considered the grooming process when children are often abused like that. And so that's what had happened to me. My mother was aware of what was going on. And I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, there, there are many movies out there who kind of get this. Um, and I, I want to, I don't even like saying this, but um, just so you understand, like the, the concept behind it is this a thriller portion of what things look like mm -hmm. the exciting there's nothing exciting about human trafficking, but enough to gain an audience's attention. And that's what we see in the movies. So we see someone thrown in the back of a van, uh, someone taking off at an airport and never seeing them again. And this, you know, uh, long story of how families are trying to get their children out. That does happen. But I think most people don't realize it does happen in family settings and relationship settings. There are people who are trafficked out by their significant others and so in my case, because I was a minor, it did not fall under the piece of force, fraud, and coercion, which is part of, at least in the United States, part of the umbrella of human trafficking if someone is not a minor. So I was a minor, therefore that piece did not involve in that. But there was my mother, me, and then of course the person who was abusing me. Because there was an exchange happening, um, so to backtrack a little bit, I was being exchanged out for free piano lessons for myself and my siblings. And so because there was a service being exchanged, then we fall into that piece of human trafficking where a child is in the middle of that exchange. So that's a little bit of my backstory. And that's what's really made me passionate about talking about this, about ending this. Um, you know, I didn't even realize I was trafficked until a few years ago. I was actually training at a volunteer event. I've, I've I had training for anti-human trafficking for about 10 years now, international and domestic. I used to be a flight attendant with Delta, and that's where I first got introduced to the global anti-human trafficking. And I, I had been very passionate about that, uh, but it wasn't until a few years ago that when I was training a volunteer and shared a little bit of my backstory, they pointed out, hey, you might want to look into that. I, I think that might be part of human trafficking too. Wow. So that's that's where it's led to this point. Not only are you passionate about 
helping people fight human trafficking, like your faith, you're pretty passionate about your faith now. Yeah. How did that happen? Like you, you're growing up in this family that's quote, for lack of a better term, in ministry, but you have this horrible experience. You would think that turns most people off from wanting anything to do with Christianity then, right? If that's how they grew up. So how did you find and meet like the real Jesus, I guess? What was that faith journey like for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I I don't blame anyone, truthfully, and that might sound awful coming from a Christian, but I don't blame anyone who leaves the faith. I understand. Uh, It makes perfect sense. For me, when I left home, I went to a very religious college, uh, not necessarily somewhere I would go back to now due to some different beliefs, but it, it ended up being a very safe place for me compared to home. And when I was there, I met some amazing students who often talked about their relationship with church leadership. And they would say, oh, my youth pastor just called me yesterday and asked how I was doing, how I was settling into classes. And I never heard of anyone doing something that kind before. I thought, well, this this is different. And I started to watch their lives. And I noticed that there was there was something very different about the faith that they held on to versus what I was taught. Um, It wasn't until after I left college and got married, my husband, who grew up in a a similar type of environment, actually became a Christian first. I was still working as a flight attendant at the time, and I was away from home. And I get this phone call. And he says, I want to let you know, I just became a Christian. I was very confused. Uh, What does that mean? You know, you've been in ministry, because he volunteered in ministry for as long as I knew him, I didn't understand. And so he explained to me what that looked like. And over the course of a few months, I started asking God, what does this mean? Who are you? I don't know who you are. Please show me if if any of this is real or any of this stuff even matters. Mm-hmm. And so about eight months later, it was, it was February, I was coming home from church and my husband was homesick that day and I was actually judging him for not going to church that morning. (laughs) I was a little bit of a religious zealot. Um, So, you know, I dropped off my tithe, went to church, uh, came home, uh, made some comments about why he wasn't at church to him. But then that lack of peace started to bother me again. And I asked him, you know, if we could talk about it. He said, sure, of course, you know, let's let's talk about this. So we ended up opening to Acts chapter eight. I'd read that passage hundreds of times, but I never noticed a few things. One being that the the story is the Apostle Phil is talking to the Ethiopian man um, about the passages in Isaiah. I never noticed that this man was very religious and coming home from a place of worship. And I'm thinking, oh, this guy should know what the passage of Isaiah means, but he doesn't understand. Uh So I continue to read. And I had been taught all my life that coming to Jesus meant that you prayed some sort of formal prayer or maybe you got his attention, maybe including, you know, doing things that that seem really unconventional, crying and wailing at an altar, um, various strange practices that I, I, I don't resonate with now, but 
that's what I thought it took to get God's attention was something dramatic. And then maybe he would listen. And I, I see this where it's a conversation. He says, oh, I believe there's water. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to follow Jesus. And then it kind of transitions into a completely different story. I thought, wow, it's that, it's that simple. I've never understood this before. So I started making some excuses for myself. I, I understand now this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But I started making excuses. And I started saying, no, no, no. I grew up in a ministry environment. I went to a Christian college. I've prayed a million times. I've read my Bible. I've tithed. I've done all these things. And it was like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, that's a, that's a nice list, but I'm not on it. And it was the first time I realized that Jesus was completely non-existent in my life. And it wasn't a formal prayer. It was more of an acknowledgement and understanding that he was who he says he is. And, you know, it, it's not an overnight thing. I've been through a lot of things with battling uh, mental health from that trauma that I grew up with. And it's not been an easy path, but I know I don't have to do it alone. And I still struggle with depression. I was diagnosed with PTSD back in 2018, of course, with everything that happened. But, you know, I, I understand that there's, there is a different, there is a different, there's a different way in life and it's completely unrelated to how I was raised. And I'm really thankful for that piece that I found and, you know, the people that have really surrounded and supported me through this whole process. And so that's just a little bit about how I met Jesus. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to be where I'm at today. And now you help people, uh, especially it seems um, you're especially passionate about helping people uh, that are being abused or trafficked within religious settings. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it happens a lot more than we realize. Um, And I I would love to help because I I, I get messages from pastors all the time. What can we do? I I see there's an issue. I see there's a problem. And I, I don't want to be part of that problem. How do we how do we make things right? How do we protect people? And so that's been that's been a huge blessing to know that there are people that genuinely care that much uh, about that. It's not an easy task to look at straight on because nobody wants to to think of that, especially within a church setting. And it's it's very hard to look at as as it is. But um, yeah, I'm very I'm very passionate about speaking up on on how that can happen. Um, yeah, and like you said, like it happens within the church, even mm-hmm. unfortunately. And um, well, we've really seen that come to light the last few years. I feel like um, here in Canada, we've had some uh, major uh, stories, mm-hmm. especially in the last year, pop up with abuse within congregations. What are signs um, that we could be watching for? Or how to? Yeah, maybe let's start there. What are signs we could be watching for? Sure. And I I think I want to say this to anyone who might just be dipping their toes into a church setting, or maybe you've been raised in church your whole life. And this is all, you know, because I was in that similar environment If that's all I knew. And now I understand that's, that's not okay. Um, Be very leery about any type of church who is very hyper fixated on only one topic that is not gospel related. 
a lot of times there are churches, at least in my experience, that will hyperfixate on perhaps things that are going on outside of the walls of the church who like to point fingers and make uh, very, very extreme remarks about some things, but they hyperfixate and that's all they talk about. Uh, they maybe sprinkle in the gospel here and there, but I've noticed that when you are in a church environment like that, there is no room for leadership to look within and really protect their people because they're too busy looking on the outside. So be very careful of that. Uh, it also might be, at, at least in experiences that I've been through, because I have been, unfortunately, in some other abusive church settings where the pastor may be uh, not wanting their history looked up. I've, I've seen that too, where they may be carrying something they've transferred from another church. Something happened there, they took off. It's quite common in the U.S. They'll run out of state and do the same thing. So if they keep people busy enough to look on the outside where all those problems way out there with those people that we don't identify with, no one is looking within and, and shedding a light where there might be darkness within that religious setting. So definitely be careful of that. Also, if a child, and this might sound very strange or cliche, if a child comes to you and says, this is happening to me, believe them, listen. You know, I know kids can kids can make up some stories and, you know, they might talk about how a pirate was uh, jumping off of a pew in a church somewhere. And we know that's that's they're they're making that up. They have a great imagination. But if a child is coming to you with explicit details of what is happening to them. Usually 99 percent, they're not making that up because a child shouldn't know what that means. They are too young to be able to give those types of details. And if they do know what that is, there may be something going on at home. They're, they shouldn't know about that. So I think it's very important if you're in any type of youth ministry to be watching for those signs. Also, if a, if a child reenacts what is happening to them onto another child, this is also known as COCSA, uh, child on child sexual abuse. This is also a, a common sign too, that usually that child is doing something that they've either seen Something is being shown to them either at home or possibly by another ministry leader or that action is being done to them. And so if you see that, that is a major red flag. There's a larger issue than just that child doing that to another child. So those are a few signs uh, to watch for. And um, I think, you know, I, and I'm seeing this a lot more. Um, I have a few friends that are in uh, the Methodist denomination. I, I didn't grow up in Methodist. I'm, I'm not currently Methodist, but they've shared with me that they have a program called Safe Sanctuaries, where they go into extensive details um, of how to look for predators, uh, what are the signs, how to report, and not just within a church setting, but how to report to authorities. It's very important that that's not just kept within the church if something is going on. So I, I really appreciate that. There's a few other denominations who take this very seriously as well. Um, so I'm starting to see that more, and I, I really appreciate that. But those are just a few signs that we can be looking out for. You, you mentioned one thing that I think is very important to do, but it also can be the very hardest for us to do, which is you start by believing the people that say mm -hmm. things. Maybe yeah. it comes from like innocent until proven guilty, which is obviously a great thing for our justice system, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very important to start with that belief and take action in con. Yeah. What? Okay. That's a good question. What do you do then when 
somebody comes and tells you, a young child especially, mm-hmm. this has happened to me. And what is the next step then? Because I think often churches tend to, like you mentioned earlier, bury these things. What steps yeah. should we be taking? Absolutely. And, you know, just from having been the victim of, of these types of abuses, abusers know who to rub shoulders with. So that way they are never, they're never in that line of, oh, maybe you are guilty. They're mm-hmm. going to do this before they ever do anything to anyone. Um, it, they'll, they'll groom the child usually, um, but they'll also make sure they're within some sort of connection to people that are considered trustworthy in that church. I think that's why a lot of times predators do look for leadership positions within church settings because they're less likely to be questioned. So keep in mind that when you hear that and you, your first reaction, like, Oh no, uh, they would never do that. And the abuser may be any gender. They, they don't have to be just men that are doing this. And I think that's what catches people off guard sometimes when they hear that it might be a woman abusing a child, but you know, you might have to step back from your bias of, Oh, this, this is my friend they're speaking of. But let's look at this logically. What is happening? A child shouldn't be coming to me at six years old telling me these explicit details. They're telling me this is a red flag. And so I think it's very important that the church has protocol in place to get law enforcement involved. Depending on where you live, those reporting procedures might look different, but something needs to be done right away. And that child needs to be removed um, from that environment. Say if it's a if it is a person teaching a youth class, um, this might sound harsh, but I think that person should be that person teaching should be removed immediately, um, so that way they can be they can be doing an investigation, because if it's it might not just be that child that's having these stories, but might be too scared to to come forward. So I think it's important that the, the safety is uh, held first. Um, while that investigation process is going on. And if a child is telling you that's happening in their home, there are definitely other other steps to that. But uh, depending on where you live, those reporting processes might look different, but it's very important to get law enforcement involved right away. Um, how can churches go about becoming better educated on these matters? You mentioned like the Methodist Safe Sanctuary Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else can we look at and do besides getting you to come speak at our church? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I would I would love to do that. If if anyone um, would like to connect with me, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, but maybe research and check to see if there's any uh, survivors in your local area who are doing some similar things, like speaking out on these topics. Uh, you might be surprised that there are some other activists close to you that may be able to speak um, directly to what is happening in your community. The more eyes, the better. So. Um, building that network with people who are talking about these things uh, might be helpful. If you don't have a program, maybe look into uh, specific programs, whether it's security. Uh, My current church that I attend, they have a very extensive accountability system. Uh, There are two people dedicated specifically just to the pastor uh, who have been background checked, vetted, and also have people monitoring them in order so that way if something happens and our pastor does something off the wall or is convicted of something, uh, they're then able to overstep and say, hey, it's time for you to leave. So even things to that extent, our our pastors are not God. Um, 
you know, we, we are all flawed human beings and um, that doesn't excuse any type of behavior. Oh, they were just a flawed human being. Now they've abused someone. That, that's not what I'm saying. But because of that, it should be taken so seriously that we put accountability in place for anyone in church leadership, not just when we feel something might be wrong. Uh, another thing you can do is if the church is, is a larger um, facility or even smaller churches, you might be able to um, ask if there's anyone in your church who might be uh, a former active duty member of the military uh, who has experience looking out for these types of things. Um, I've been to churches before that do this, and my current one does this as well. They have a whole security team dedicated to keeping children safe, as well as looking out for dangerous situations. You know, we've, we've had a lot of uh, very scary things happening lately where people are gathered together and something happens and everyone's in danger. So we have security team members who are looking out for that. They also have an accountability system as well. So they're not just walking around by themselves or around children. Uh, there are cameras in place. So that way there, there can be footage in case we need to report that to law enforcement. So I, I think it's, if you think you are going too extreme with safety, you're probably right where you need to be. So <laughs> that's what I would recommend. Um, what do you say? I guarantee there's probably survivor, at least one survivor listening to this episode. Mm -hmm. What do you say to a survivor? And maybe they've never told anybody anything, right? And Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement because, you know, their, mm -hmm. their situation may be very different than mine. And I, I don't, I'm very hesitant to even say, I understand how you feel because maybe I don't, but I do know what pain feels like. And I do know what shame feels like. And it is a, it is a terrifying and isolating place to live. A feeling like you can't go to anyone or maybe you have been shut down before you've opened up and someone said that never happened or if you talk about that what kind of what kind of believer are you they may throw that blame back on you and, and you feel like opening up is either it's either wrong or no one's going to believe you anyway to that I, I would have to say you know they're wrong for doing that to you you know, that can that can feel re-traumatizing all over again. Uh, you should have never gone through that abuse. That that's it's something you never asked for. You, no one asks for that. And it, you know, if if this helps at all, I believe you. Um, but I, I truly hope that you are able to either find a therapist. That's where a lot of this started for me. Is is working through that someone who does have that experience of, of working with whatever situation you've been through, who can speak into your situation um, and, and, and walk you through that. Also, support groups have been tremendously helpful for me. Um, I'm part of a group called Celebrate Recovery. They are a Christian organization, wonderful group. And I think when people hear recovery, they immediately think, oh, I have to have uh, substance abuse or uh, some sort of dependency in order to to come to these groups. And while I, I commend anyone who is working through that, that that's a lot to go through. Um, so I, I, I want to honor your story there too, if that is your story. But it, if you don't have that as your background, like myself, 
those groups are often very welcoming to anyone who's carrying anything. Uh, the, the tagline for them is hurts, habits, and hangups. So it's not just substance abuse. It's also, you might be walking through grief. You've, you've lost a family member. It, maybe you've been through human trafficking. Maybe you've, you've been through that abuse in a church setting. It's anyone who is carrying anything that is making them feel they need to be stuck in shame. So uh, I would highly recommend that group, uh, CR, especially if you are uh, a Christian and, and you, you do believe in Jesus. They are very pro-Jesus. Uh, everything is started with prayer and uh, scripture reading, and you might find that very encouraging. So I would say, you know, there are people that are going to believe you. And um, please don't, please don't hold yourself in, in this shame. Um, any longer. You don't deserve to be there. Yeah. How can we uh, get connected with you, follow along with up your with what you're up to, or maybe get a hold of you to uh, get you to our church or something like that? Absolutely. So I do have social media platforms. The best way to find all of them is probably to go to my website, isamidane.com. There is a section that shows you what all those social links are. I'm most active on Instagram, which is Isami underscore Dane um, on Instagram. And then also you can uh, email at uh, the admin email address. It's admin at isamidane.com. I know that's completely not original, just using my name everywhere. <laughs> but um, if you email me at admin at isamidane.com, um, we'll definitely um, work with you there. So please feel free to reach out to me anytime. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your passion with us, Asami, and all the best in the work that you do. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us and for listening today. Remember, don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.